Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Today we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. And uh, we, we find ourselves in chapter 13 with a message I've entitled, The Antichrist Revealed. Stand with me and let's read our passage together. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Uh, the beast, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, um, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was not allowed to exercise authority for, or it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the word, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, to speak into our lives. We ask you now, Lord, to just encourage our hearts, to help us have a better understanding of things to come, Lord. And we just pray, Father, that these words would uh, not make us afraid, Lord, but they would give us courage. They would build our faith. Lord, they would help us to have insight and to know who's really in control of all things always. So we ask that you would come and minister to us, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds to you now, we pray. Speak to us by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. When I say the name Jonathan Goldsmith, what comes to mind? Jonathan Goldsmith. For most of us, maybe nothing comes to mind. Jonathan Goldsmith is the most interesting man in the world. That's right. He is the Dosakis, uh, the, the Dosakis commercial spokesperson. He is a fictitious, fictitious character that portrays the epic of epics. He, the writers of the commercials make wild claims about this man, such as that he's so successful that he won the same lifetime achievement award twice hey listen sharks have a week dedicated to him his mother has a tattoo that reads son superman has pajamas with his picture on them the dark is afraid of him and my personal favorite he was once bitten by a rattlesnake and after five days of excruciating pain the rattlesnake finally died why because he's the most interesting man in the world. 
Well, although this was a clever marketing scheme of a beer company, it will become reality at one day. There is coming one who the world will consider the most interesting man in the world. He will not be a Dosakis spokesperson. He will be a spokesperson for none other than Satan himself. He is the Antichrist. And he will be empowered by Satan in these last days to do all kinds of miraculous things, to do all kinds of uh, things that will woo the world to himself. He will be known as the man, as it were. And in fact, next week we'll see so much so that God labels him with the number of man, which is 666. The interesting thing about this man, though, is that he cannot, he's being suppressed currently. He's being restrained from rising up. Why? Because we're here. Because we as the church are here. We would be able to call him out immediately and say, that is the Antichrist. As this prominent leader would rise up and you know, deceive the nations, we would call him out as believers. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. The Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth, will remind us of the words of Jesus himself. And so the Antichrist currently is being restrained. I believe that the Antichrist has existed from day one. The enemy has an Antichrist, uh, somebody in his wing at all times, and we'll see in a moment, John tells us that, that there has been in the spirit of Antichrist or Antichrists have come over and over and over. And we'll talk about some of those people that have represented that spirit. The enemy has had the Antichrist in his wings, but he is not allowed to surface until the restrainer is taken out of the way. Paul tells us this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. He says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders." And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I believe wholeheartedly that the restrainer that Paul is speaking about is the Holy Spirit. I don't think there's any other interpretation of that. I think the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. And because you and I are sealed with the Holy Spirit, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, in order for the Antichrist to rise up, the church must be taken out of the way. I don't think there's any other way for this to happen. And so, uh, you know, if the Lord, if that's the case, the Lord will take the, the church out of the world, then the Antichrist can surface. What we know is it's all according to God's timing. Who's in control here, folks? Not Satan. Not Satan. God is in control. God has a timing for everything. He has a plan and a purpose, and he will execute flawlessly exactly when he intends to. And so we wait in the wings for our Lord. 
we're waiting for him to come get his church. When he comes and gets his church, I believe that as we are lifted out of the world, then the Antichrist rises up. The restrainer is no longer uh, restraining him. This Antichrist will come in the power and the deception of Satan, and the world will follow him hook, line, and sinker. Did you catch why? Because they refuse to believe the truth. They refuse to believe the truth. I will believe anything else but God. Anything, you know, it's, it's the Nacho Libre. I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Well, God is science. God created science. God is the master chemist. He created all things, and it's such a stupid argument. But the reality of it is, you will never convince somebody who refuses to believe. And the Lord, in fact, will say, you don't want to believe? Fine, I'll give you a strong delusion so that you can follow right along with the Antichrist. He will allow man to follow that path to the, ed, to, to, the, to the depths of hell, folks, because he gives us the ability to walk in free will. And that is true love, by the way. Love does not force himself on anyone, but allows a person to choose. And the Lord, wooing us to himself, allows us the opportunity to come to him after he draws us. We can't come to him if he doesn't draw us. And he's drawing you, I trust me, he's drawing you. Will you come? Will you respond to him? Well, this Antichrist will rise up. Now, John tells us in, his, uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, that the Antichrist, many Antichrists have come. He says in, in verse 18, children of, of John, 1 John 2, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John is telling something to, to the people he's writing to. He's telling them something they already know. They already understand this. They already understand that, that the, 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 many Antichrists have come. This isn't new news to them. They were, they were understanding that the Antichrist could have surfaced at any point. And in fact, he says, listen, we know we're in the last hour. Why? Because many antichrists have come. The world is poised. If the world was poised in position 2,000 years ago for the antichrist to surface, how much more is it now? I, I hate it when Christians say they've been saying that forever. Saying what? Christ is coming back. Listen, one day it's going to happen. One day it will happen. And Christian, if you're not prepared, I mean, you'll be surprised when you're lifted up if you're a believer. Whoa, I'm getting crazy up here. So, so here's the reality is that there's been many that have come. In the Bible, we can look back in history. We can look back in biblical times. We can see people like Nimrod, like Haman. We can see people like Herod, Herod the Great, who were antichrist. And they all had one thing in common. They were against God's people. Anybody who represented God, they were against. Not only that, but we can look back in history. Look at the Caesars alone. Caesar Gaius, also named Caligula. He, he was considered the Antichrist after putting a statue in the temple in AD, 37 AD in Jerusalem. Considered the Antichrist. 20 years later, uh, we surfaces Caesar Nero who was given the designation of Antichrist by early Christians, and they called him the beast. What about Mussolini, uh, Napoleon Barnapot? What about Charlemagne, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, and the like? All of these 
leaders operated in the spirit of Antichrist. This tells us, listen, that the enemy is prepared. He's ready. He has an Antichrist in his wings and he will always have one in the wings until he's allowed to surface. And then I believe, and this is conjecture, so take it as such, I believe that Satan himself will manifest, will, will possess this man himself. I don't think he'll put it off to some other demon or anything like that. We'll see that this one comes out of the abyss uh, next week, or Revelation chapter 17, we'll get into more of that as well. But I believe that this man will be possessed by Satan himself. So, so we've seen the foreshadowing of Antichrist, but it will be nothing like the Antichrist that will come. Be nothing like that. John Wolvord commented regarding this. He said, when the Holy Spirit takes the church up to meet the Lord in the air, then the last hindrance of the power of evil will be gone. There will be no longer any restraint on the machinations of the devil. Nothing will restrain him at that point. There'll be a period of time on planet Earth where no one is, is filled or sealed with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God has taken his church. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be believers that are filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit later. Because as people become Christians, we know that that's part of the process. You, you come to Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14 talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's the seal of promise. Mike talked about it last week. The signet ring of God. It's his stamp on your life that says you belong to me. And so people will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. Then they will be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming upon them to do various acts and such to uh, perform, uh, to be a witness for his purposes. Acts chapter 1, 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where the, the church receives power from on high. That is what we call a baptism of the Holy Spirit, or you can call it a filling of the Holy Spirit or whatever you want. It's a subsequent um, empowerment by the Holy Spirit to do the work of a witness upon planet Earth. So after the church is gone, the Antichrist will surface and the world will be in love with him. The first three and a half years, the Antichrist will deceive everyone. He will deceive everyone. There'll be 144,000 Jews that are sealed uh, by God, protected by God. They will not be allowed to be killed or anything like that. They will be his witnesses on planet Earth, and they will go out and, and tell people about the gospel. During this time, the Antichrist will be this charming person that will uh, woo people in, and he'll give them all the, he'll have all the answers. What happened to all these people that just disappeared one day? He'll have an answer for that. He'll have an answer for all of the judgments that are raining down from heaven upon Earth. Listen, during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, he will have an answer for all of these things and not only this but he will be loved by Israel he will be loved by Israel because he will give Israel what it wants Israel as a nation longs for a temple to worship in and the, and Daniel tells us that this man will give Israel the ability to worship in a physical temple in Jerusalem for three, the first three and a half years of the tribulation period Midway through the tribulation period, listen folks, all hell breaks loose on earth 
relating to the demonic presence in this world, it will be like nothing you've ever seen. Now, there are questions relating to where does uh, chapter 13 fit into the timeline, the scope of you know, all of these things. It's talking about sort of the rise of the beast, who is, I'm going to talk about this in a second, both the, the, what I believe the revived Roman Empire and a person. It's both of them represented. The beast is collective. There's a king of a kingdom. And it's, so it's representing both the kingdom and the king himself. The Antichrist is who I believe that, that is there. And so, so where does this fit into? You know, people say, well, it's the rise of the Antichrist. So it has to be the very beginning of the tribulation period because that's when the Antichrist rises up, right? Well, I interesting enough, I take a little bit different view on this. I, I you know, I, I kind of like to look at this like we just read about Satan being cast out of heaven for forever. He's never allowed to go back into heaven now. The enemy currently is able to go back into heaven and, and he accuses you of things that are probably true. But remember, Jesus stands in the gap and he says, I paid the price. And so, you know, there's that dialogue happening currently. But midway through the tribulation period, I believe, the enemy is cast out of heaven, cast down to earth, never to step foot in heaven again. So he unleashes his wrath like never before. Right? All orchestrated by God, by the way. He's not in control. God's in control. Just always keep that in mind. I think possibly that's what this is speaking of here today is the unleashing of a fury of wrath midway through the tribulation period when it talks about the Antichrist rising up in this moment, he switches gears. He's fooled everybody for the first three and a half years. He's everybody's friend. Well, guess what? Three and a half years into the tribulation period, the Antichrist will step into the temple. He'll say, I'm God, worship me or die. I think that there is a shift midway through the tribulation period relating to the Antichrist himself, and I believe that that is when the satanic influence becomes so prevalent and so heavy upon him that, you know, if you're a believer, you clearly know this is satanic. I believe that that's possibly where this fits in. It could be that this is parenthetical and it's speaking, you know, about, it's, it's sort of like the movies, you know, when you're, when you're looking at eight different people's views of the same day, you know, starting from eight o'clock in the morning up till five o'clock and you, you have these different views of people and, and what they experienced during the day. If you've ever seen like uh, a movie like talking about 9-11, you know, and, and so it talks about people, it shows different angles of what people were doing on that morning when, when that tragic thing happened. So, you know, that Hollywood didn't create that. God did. Then that would be what's called a parenthetical pause in the middle of the tribulation. Very well could be that God is just drawing us back to the rise of the Antichrist in the very beginning. I take it as mid-tribulation, mid uh, you know, and, and such. So the Antichrist is going to rise up. He's going to, uh, you know, midway through the tribulation period, we know, according to Daniel, uh, Daniel 9, that he is going to break his covenant with the nation of Israel, and he will uh, unleash his wrath on the nation of Israel. If you think that you've, you've seen in this world today anti-Semitism, um, if you think you've seen that, in this world today, you've seen nothing. You wait until midway through the tribulation period. You wait until midway through the tribulation period. Remember the tribulation period, primarily Jewish. God dealing with the nation of Israel. The enemy understanding that has been targeting the nation of Israel from day one. 
and he will unleash like never before midway through the tribulation period. Now, with all of that said, the biggest question that we have is who is he? So I'm about ready to tell you. So take notes. We don't know, right? <laughs> and here's what I will tell you about this, folks. I would, as your pastor, encourage you to spend zero time trying to figure it out. Do not spend any time trying to figure out what world leader could possibly be the Antichrist. That is a waste of your time, period. I know prophecy's fun, and I know that it's, it's something that we are intrigued in. I'm just trying to get the basics down. I don't know about you, but I need to go back to the Gospels and figure out how I'm supposed to be living my life and how I'm supposed to be treating people. I don't need to spend time trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. Right? So many people are, are looking for the Antichrist. Church, you've heard it said, and I'll say it again. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for who? Jesus Christ. Amen. That is true. Waste no time on looking for the Antichrist. What, you know, so that begs the question, then why would we study such a chapter? Why would we study such a chapter? Listen, there are, there are times where there's sections of Scripture that are, every, every ounce of scripture is beneficial to us. But here's what I'll say. Sometimes uh, there, are, there are times where the scriptures that we're reading are gonna be far more beneficial to somebody else down the road. Be far more beneficial to people in the future versus those who are in the present. How do I know? Because Daniel was in that boat. Remember Daniel chapter 12. The Lord told Daniel, Daniel's trying to figure out all of this prophetic stuff, and he's saying, man, I would like to know about this. I'm really concerned about this beast that rises up in Daniel chapter 7, this fourth beast that's speaking about this, actually. And, and, and the Lord says in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel, I know you're stuck on this, but I need you to seal up the books because it's not for you. And he was the man that the Lord used. He was the man that God gave the prophetic words to. But it wasn't for him to understand. Here's what I know is that there's coming a time where there will be people in this world during a seven-year tribulation period that will benefit far more from Revelation 13 than you and I will from this morning because they will be in it. The purpose of the scriptures is to reveal God and to reveal the things around us about what God is doing. You and I, however, can benefit from understanding the characteristics of the Antichrist and to understand the, the temperature of our world today. That's why 1 John 2.18 is important. It says, hey, listen, we know we're in the last days because many Antichrists have come. We look around and we see the evilness in our world today and we say, oh man, we're getting closer. We're getting closer to the coming of Christ. He's coming soon. And so, you know, we can learn things. Not only that, but listen, you have family members, and a lot of people have asked me this question recently. Hey, what about my kids? What if they're not saved? Are they going to go through this? This is what I would tell you. Teach your kids prophecy. Teach your kids prophecy. Teach them to understand the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. You're responsible to teach your kids. You cannot save your kids. If your kids are not saved, they will go through this. If, 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 this is the time frame in which God chooses. But here's what I know. They're not your kids anyway. They're his kids. And I think he loves his kids way more than you love your kids. So in my mind, God is going to take care of the kids that he entrusted with you. 
and your responsibility to simply lay the foundation for them. So give them the right foundation. Give them an understanding of Christianity. Give them an understanding of, of the, the end times things that are coming in the world. Do you ever talk about it at home? You ever just flip on the news and then start talking about the Bible? That's not a novel thought. Uh, look at what's going on in the world today, kids. What do you think about this? You ever done that with your kids and they have all kinds of wild uh, you know, ideas and stuff and you say, you know, the scripture talks about this. And you know, there's gonna be a time frame when somebody rises up in this world and he's gonna take over. And you know what? He's gonna be empowered by Satan. And if you see that, then you better accept the Lord, <laughs> you know? But you should accept the Lord now so you don't have to go through that because, you know, and you can go on and on and on. But my point is this that this, this, this uh, chapter, the book of, the chapter 13, is not absolutely crucial, I think, for the church in terms of us really having a, 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 a super massive grasp on, on the Antichrist himself. I think the point is for us today is to encourage us that we know God's in control, that he's doing things, and that there will be one that will come. He gives us sort of this general idea, and we will, from that place, you know, the Lord will, will uh, y y encourage us to encourage others to know that the time has come. So, um, but there is a word, I think, specifically uh, that can be incredibly applied to our lives this morning. And I'll, we'll get there in a minute. There's six things that John speaks about this, 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 this one to come, the, the most interesting man in the world. The first thing that we find here is the summoning of the beast. Look with me at verse one. And and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven diadems and ten, or seven heads and ten diadems and on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. So before we jump into this, you might have noticed two weeks ago when we ended Revelation chapter 12, there's a phrase that I didn't talk about because I believe it goes with this chapter. So the very last phrase, uh, verse, and some of your versions don't have it here. They have it in Revelation 13. But uh, if you have the ESV version, NASB, or any of those that are translated from the critical text, it, it's going to be in the one above it. And it says, and he stood on the sand of the sea. So there is a couple different interpretations of this particular passage. If you use the New King James Version or the King James Version, um, or anything that translates from the majority text, it's going to say, and I saw, and I saw, um, and I stood on the sand of the seashore. Speaking about John, John is the I in the passage here when, it, when it's speaking about that. But the ESV, the, the, the uh, New American Standard, those translate from what's called the critical text. The critical text, I think, is it's, it's a far more scrutinizing a way to translate the Bible. There's really two bodies of scriptures that they use to translate the Bible, the critical text and the majority text. The majority is just all of them out there. They kind of take a summarization of all the different um, early manuscripts and they collectively come down to a translation. The critical text uh, takes a little bit more scrutinous approach to is this scripture? Is this, you know, just because it's in the majority is this a, a note that was written on the side and such? And, and they translate that as he. And who would be the he being spoken of here? It would be the dragon, because that's what we've been talking about, about the dragon coming on the earth. Who's the dragon? The dragon is Satan. 
So it could be that it's speaking about Satan standing on the sand of the sea. That's how I would interpret this. That's, how I, that's why I use the ESV version because I, I like that translation better. So I take it as the dragon here, standing on the sand of the sea. Now, some of you as beach lovers are like, oh, the sands of the sea, I just lost you. But listen, it's not that kind of a beach, I promise. The, the sands of the shore, or the, the idea of that is that he's standing on the banks of the world, and the sea is really speaking about humanity. So here we have the dragon, standing on the seashore, which is the world, looking into all of humanity. And, he, and out of all of humanity is going to what? Rise the beast. That's what happens. Out of the sea comes this beast. That means that he's in the world somewhere. That means he's, he's even in the world right now, in this moment. He could surface at any moment. Um, we get the idea that the sea being, being waters or seas from Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, and many other places. But, and it says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multi, uh, multitudes and nations and languages. So the dragon standing on the shore of the world looking over all of humanity. This reminds me of something else. Reminds me of the moment when Jesus, just before the triumphal entry, is standing upon the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, and he says this. And he says this, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks, but what? You are not willing. The enemy now, imagine the same idea. He is a false Christ. He longs the worship of God. He emulates Jesus to a T. He is a copycat of Jesus. This is my interpretation of him standing, as it were, on the Mount of Olives, looking over the world, and his, his heart is different. He longs to steal, kill, and destroy. He longs to unleash upon the world. That's what his heart is. Why? Because all of humanity reminds him of God. All of humanity reminds the enemy of, of the Lord himself. John seeing the, the Satan here uh, summoning what, the beast, you know, the kraken from Clash of the Titans, as it were. Here we find John saying, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. The beast here, as I said, represents both a kingdom and a person, and uh, we saw in, in chapter 12, the dragon who is Satan had similar traits to this beast. So some people come to this passage and say, oh, this is the dragon. It's not the dragon. The dragon empowers this beast. This beast is part of the dragon. That's why the, the traits are similar. That's why you see a lot of similarities in terms of who this is. But it is not the dragon. The dragon is somebody different. It's Satan. The beast is the kingdom that will come and the king that will, will rise up in that, that kingdom. We know that uh, Daniel tells us uh, that there will be a revived kingdom coming up. We believe it's a revived Roman kingdom. Why? Because of the legs of iron representing the empire of Rome. And it says that then, the, then, da, then Nebuchadnezzar saw feet that were mixed with both iron and clay. What that says is it's not a stable it's not a stable environment. Iron and clay cannot bond with each other. So, and we know from uh, other, in other places that um, there will be, a, it will be, actually Daniel chapter two, verse 41, it will be a divided kingdom 
but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. If the iron is represented as Rome, then it would be some sort of a revived Roman Empire, and the, the, the iron would be uh, sort of the, the, the stability of that particular um, empire. We know from Daniel chapter 7 that a person will rise out of this, this empire to come and will be ruler of this kingdom. So the, so the beast is both a kingdom and a person. And we see that also in the way that it's presented in Revelation 13 here. It's presented as, there, you know, John uses the personal pronouns his, him, he. This is speaking about a person. The kingdom John sees here as the beast is made up of a 10-nation world confederacy. Where do we hear that before? Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. It's important that you understand the book of Daniel because that will be very vital to your interpretation of the book of Revelation. Daniel chapter 2, talking about the mixed iron and clay, the 10 toes, speaking about these 10 the 10 nation confederation that will rise up during this time and there will be 10 that will stand. Daniel chapter seven then tells us that three of the kings will, will rise up and they will try and confront this ruler and they will die and there'll be only seven at that point following the beast here. So this, this speaking, these 10 horns are representative of strength and power and will indicate the kind of rulers that will surface during this uh, revived Roman empire. Revelation chapter 17 verse 12 tells us, and the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So when, when we're trying to find out what something means in scripture, what do we do? Look in scripture. Let scripture interpret scripture. This tells us right here exactly what we're dealing with, 10 kings. Uh, they will have 10 diadems. Again, a diadem is a crown that represents ruling power and authority. Uh, we, uh, uh, and then it says here that there are seven heads that are represented, re representative of seven world empires. We talked about this again in, uh, in Revelation chapter 12 when we talked about the dragon and its seven heads. The, the seven heads representative of the seven world empires that have existed, starting with Egypt, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, then we have the uh, Medo-Persians, then Greece, then Rome, and finally, the seventh will be a, Roman, uh, a revived Roman Empire. John also notices regarding this, the, the rise of this beast that there are blasphemous names written on its head, on its head. So all seven of those, those nations, those world powers that existed, all blasphemous. And I just challenge you to go back and look in the cultures and how every one of them, you know, the pharaohs were considered God. Every one of these rulers were considered some sort of deity and they blasphemed the God of the Jews. They blasphemed the, the true and living God. And it will be no different in the end here. We just, uh, Paul says in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, that the Antichrist will consider himself God. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebel, rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. That's called blasphemy, right? And then he says, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Blasphemy. So this, this, this final 
empire will be just like the previous six and it will be blasphemous in the way that it represents itself to God. So we have the rise of the Antichrist here. I believe this is mid-tribulation where he's unleashing as not a friend of the world but as God here on earth as it, as it says here. Remember, uh, when, when the church being removed as the restrainer, then Satan pulls the trigger. This man rises up in this uh, Roman Empire uh, and, and so on and so forth. Next, we'll consider the source of his rule. Look at verse two with me. So we have the rise of the Antichrist, now the source of his rule, verse two. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So John sees a very similar, you know, uh, picture as Daniel did in Daniel chapter seven. Remember, the fourth beast was terrifying to Daniel. So much so that he, it really, it, it scared him. It terrified him. And it says that he hid that in his heart. Like he, wa he wanted to understand that because he was afraid. And you know, he, he, he had some sort of an understanding that, that fear is not from God. But the way that we get rid of fear is through understanding. We get, the more we understand, the less we fear. That's why we'll see in, here in a little bit, the more time you spend in God's word, the less worry you will have about the things going on in the world because your faith will increase. So in some way, shape, or form, Daniel understood, you know, he, he, he was afraid of this beast that's being spoken of here, but it's the same uh, person. The beast has uh, the characteristics of what we interpret as three different world powers that Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter seven. You could read it later, um, but, but the leopard he talks about first, Listen, he was like a leopard. He wasn't a leopard. He wasn't a bear. He was like a bear. He wasn't a, a lion. Like, he wasn't the lion's mouth. He was like it. We have to understand the word like there. What he's saying is this is symbolic. There's some symbolisms here. The, the, the ruling powers of, of, of the leopard, it represents the Greeks who were speedy and fast in the way that they conquered so the beast was like a leopard. He's quick on his feet. He takes charge and he takes action immediately and he overcomes his enemy. He has the feet that were like a bear's representing the strength and the sure-footedness of the Medo-Persian empire who conquered the Babylonians. Then we find the beast will, will, um, will have the mouth that was like a lion's mouth. This speaks of the fierce consuming jaws of the Babylonian empire. And so this beast will have the most powerful elements of the world empires before it, the agility of the leopard, the crushing power of the bear, and the ferociousness of the lion. Where will he get his power, his throne, and great authority? It tells us right here, from the dragon. The dragon is Satan. Uh, Satan will empower him to, to, to do the things that he's going to do. Again, conjecture, partially backed by scripture, but I think that Satan will, will possess this man just like he did Judas. What do I mean? John chapter 13, verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, the, the last supper setting, Jesus telling him, somebody's gonna betray me. It says, Satan entered into him. Into who? Judas. And Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. Jesus knew what happened in that moment. Evilness had overtaken him. The enemy had entered into him. 
possessed him, took him from that place, and he went and betrayed Jesus that night. But thankfully he did because, you know what? You and I are saved as a result of that, the blood of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the penalty that he paid for our sins. Uh, Judas is considered the son of perdition, son of destruction. So is the Antichrist. Kind of interesting. Many who have written uh, uh, the biographies of Hitler, they have the same sort of ex the same sort of exclamation of, of, of who he is, the same sort of idea that he, they say, what a man, what a monster, but what a man he was. Who do you think Satan was empowered by? Not himself. And in fact, in many of these biographies of, of Hitler, they find that they, they make that declaration that he was possessed by something. We know what it is. We know exactly what it is. It was the enemy. It was the satanic possession. And in fact, one account talks about him observing Hitler in, 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 a, in the middle of a night where he was out of his mind, not literally conscious, saying all kinds of weird things, doing all kinds of weird things, writing down different things and all these kinds of things. And you could read uh, you know, these, these accounts and you will find uh, lots of weird things about Hitler. He was probably satanically possessed. He was probably one of the Antichrists that was in the wing of the enemy, ready. The Antichrist himself will be satanically empowered to deceive the nations. This is how he'll gain authority over the entire world. Um, Satan does have limitations on what he can do, though. Next, we find him trying to fit the, the, the script of the the, the, the savior of the world, Jesus Christ, through a ruse of resurrection. Look at verse three with me. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This is an interesting moment in the history of the beast. It says one of the heads of the beast had a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. There's lots of different interpretations relating to this. Is the seven heads speaking about the seven nations? So is it speaking about the mortal wound of the seventh head, which is the revived Roman Empire, that it somehow diminishes and then re, you know, is wounded and then it rises back up? I don't think so. Some say that it's historical in the way that they interpret the Bible. But again, the problem with that is that then they have to take a lot of other things symbolically, which doesn't make sense. If you read it like that, many of them say this is speaking about a supposed resurrected Judas Iscariot. Uh, others say that it was uh, following the myth of the, the resurrected Caesar Nero that supposedly happened at the end of the first century. None of these are likely. It, the better way to understand this, uh, this mortal wound and, and the head that was wounded here is the Antichrist himself. And the Antichrist having been a assassinated either for real or a staged act. It, I, I think it's really kind of a staged act because of the words here, seem to have. He seemed to have a mortal uh, wound, you know, and wouldn't it be just like Satan to stage a resurrection? He's the great deceiver, right? I mean, so imagine with me that you were at the funeral of one of the, the, the prominent leader of the world and he's laying in a box and all of a sudden, the box starts rocking, and he stands up out of the box. How in awe would you be? Really? You'd be in awe. You'd be like, whoa, what in the world? That, that guy, there's something special about him, wouldn't you? 
As this, with the Spirit of God in you, you would know something different. But here's the reality of the world who's already deceived will be further deceived in this moment. And, and it says that the whole earth will marvel as they follow the beast. So this is the enemy positioning himself to get more fanfare from the world. And there's a reason for it. There, there's a reason in this moment, positionally, what happens is there is, there is a reverence upon the beast and the dragon that happens. That's exactly what Satan is looking for. He's looking for worship. Look at verse four. And they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The thing that the enemy has been after from day one is worship, folks. He wants to be worshiped. I will be like the most high God. The most high God is a worshiped God. He's a God that makes sure that he, he, he will not contend with other gods in your life. He's not cool with idolatry. He's not part-time with you. He's either 100% with you or he's not with you at all. He wants all of you or he wants none of you. He doesn't do this you know, kind of half-hearted thing. He says, you want to believe in me? It needs to be sincere. It needs to be wholehearted. The enemy then, will he seeks that kind of worship. He wants that adoration. He wants to be God. And in this moment, he becomes like that. He, he gets the worship that he, he's, he desires to, to, to get. And this will be worldwide, folks. Worldwide satanic worship. And, you know, what, what does that look like? I don't know. I, I don't really know. I mean, in this day and age, it's so confusing because Satan worship, people who call themselves Satanists are atheists. So that's confusing to me. I, I, a Satanist believes in Satan. An atheist believes in no gods. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, I'm the new kind of Satanist. And I'm like, oh, there's a new one? Well, I didn't know that. But okay, doesn't make sense to me. But but in this moment, there will be a satanic worship on the earth worldwide, worldwide. That, that happens right now, folks. There's, there's so much satanic worship that you don't know about here in Tennessee, in the Bible Belt. Wouldn't that make sense? Of course the enemy's here. Of course he's, he's, got, he's, he's embedded himself in, in places all around here with satanic worship for real. I don't know if you've noticed, but just start looking around. You'll see people wearing pentagrams. You'll see people dressed in the black with the satanic stuff on and, and all of that kind of stuff. You'll see that. If you start paying attention, you'll see it way more. One time I was, I was here visiting, and this is before I moved here, and I was with my mom, and we were, we were at, a, um, we were at a, like a country music bar, you know, and we were, we were listening to this band, and literally my wife and I were sitting there, and, and this dude walked in, and and I had just been a believer for maybe three, three years or something, and I had this, this sense of, you know, alertness and concern immediately. And, and I will even say fear. And I watched this guy walk in, and he just sort of moved through the room, and it was like he was just floating. No joke. I wasn't drunk, I promise you. And I said, whoa. That's crazy, and I said, man, that guy is giving me the creeps, man. My, you know, the hair standing up on your hand, you know. The Spirit of God gives us discernment, folks, and he helps us understand. He gives us that heightened awareness of the spiritual things that are going around, and, and you know, I mean, uh, 
I know Steve Harper could tell you plenty of stories where he's been in situations where he sensed that. You can sense that, folks. And that is prevalent around here. But there'll be a worldwide worship of the beast and, and the dragon and the false prophet. What does that make? The unholy trinity, folks. The enemy is following the Lord to a T. He's, he's positioning himself to be God. He will have a triune Godhead, the Antichrist, the false prophet, which we'll talk about next week, and the dragon himself, who is Satan. That is the, that is the picture of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, he's, he's, he's mocking the Lord, but he, he's doing this because he desires to get the reverence that God gets. So he has this, that's what we see next here in verse uh, Verse four, oh, actually, that's where we were, but um, he, he goes on here and he says, he makes this declaration that belongs to the Lord. Who is like the beast and who can fight against him? That's a statement that belongs to God alone, folks. And, and so, you know, he'll get the worship that he seeks. And then we, we, he goes on, once he has wooed the world to this place where they now are worshiping him, now he comes with full-fledged, blasphemous words, his rude um, rhetoric here in verse five, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was not allowed to exercise authority over 42, was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. So this once charming and charismatic false savior of the world will turn arrogant and blasphemous with his words. Daniel tells us that he will be a great orator. Daniel chapter seven, verse eight. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn. That's the Antichrist, before which three of the, the first horns were plucked up by the root. That's the three kings that rise up in this 10-nation uh, ten confederacy. And behold, in this horn, the Antichrist, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. He will be an incredible orator. Daniel also says that in, in Daniel 7, 24. He has rude rhetoric, and it's derived from the dragon. It says that the dragon gives him a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words against God for 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. So again, there's a deception that happens to the world the first three and a half years. Everybody's the Antichrist buddy. Everybody, this guy is wonderful and all these sorts of things. But halfway through the tribulation period, everything, his whole demeanor turns south. And he is, he is just unleashing wrath upon the world. He's unleashing. And listen, and, and don't think for a second, there'll be a, 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 a sect of people we'll talk about next week, who are believers who are not going to take the mark of the beast. But even within the enemy's camp, so there are only two camps. You're either with God or not, not with God. But even within the enemy's camps, there will be people who aren't necessarily insurrects, people who want to rebel against the enemy. There always, always will be in every empire. It doesn't matter what it looks like. You, you know people that are probably your neighbors that are, you know, like, yeah, that guy right there, he's, prob he's part of the enemy, but he's gonna be like the enemy's enemy, right? He's gonna like try and overthrow him. There'll, there'll be those, those kind of things going on in the world. Um, but in this moment, the, the enemy will blaspheme. 
against God for, for the last three and a half years. And it, it'll be a chaotic time, folks, right before Christ comes back. Notice here, though, in the words, um, here in our text, and it was allowed. The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemy words, and it was allowed to exercise authority. Where's the authority coming from? From God. God is allowing these things to happen. Not the enemy. God is allowing these things to happen. He's in control. The enemy's not in control. Um, and, and so the, the, Lord, he, the Lord allows him to blaspheme against him, against his name, against his dwelling. Um, that is those who dwell in heaven. So there's nothing left that won't be blasphemed during this three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. He will blaspheme the Lord in every respect, every way, shape, and form. He will, and then he will ex express his repulse for the saints of God. Look at verse seven. And also it was allowed to, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over every tribe and people and language and nation. So again, clue into the words here, two words here, allowed and given, allowed and given. The Antichrist will be allowed to make war against the saints and conquer them. Now, this is hard for you, maybe us to understand. We're thinking like, wait, why would God allow the enemy to conquer his saints, to make war with his saints and conquer his saints? Listen, this is the reality of those who will live during this time is that they will die probably for their faith. They will die probably for their faith. You know, um, there's no way really around that. That is the reality. There'll, there'll be more bloodshed in this last, you know, seven years of the world than ever before. Christian persecution will be like, like it's never been seen before. People will pay for their faith. They'll pay, pay the price for believing in Jesus during this time. And that's the reality of it. But the perp, God has a plan and a purpose for that, folks. Again, we talked about this before and the idea that the Lord uses the blood of the martyrs to, to pr produce faith in other people. And there's account after account after account after account where that has happened. You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs or any other, you know, missionary or, you know, kind of uh, group of people. You can, you can look at Voice of the Martyrs. You can look at all kinds of different uh, churches that talk about Christian persecution and how much work God does through it. He does amazing work. Sometimes we get so focused on the temporary that we forget this isn't our home. And sometimes we think like, Lord, why would you allow these bad things to happen? Is it bad for a believer to die or am I not reading the Bible right? Is it bad for a believer to die, yes or no? No, because Paul says to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. So <laughs> this is not your home. Uh, when you die, the enemy was given the authority to make war against the saints and to conquer them, but it's a blessing to you to the saint. It's a blessing to the saint. The saint goes to be, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You get to, you get to go home. Uh, he still loses. He still loses. There is no winning for the enemy. You win. You win. You overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. You give your life up for Christ and you go to be with him. Some of you think like, man, I don't know if I could do that. I promise you in the moment, if you've invested yourself in Christ, 
he will show up. If he's in you, he will show up in that moment and he will give you what you need. There's a word here for believers in, this, in, in, in this, these last few verses. It says, and, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast. Every one whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. He's saying unbelievers will worship this beast. Unbelievers will give themselves over to this beast. And if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, the sword, the sword uh, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. The word uh, here for tribulation saints, notice it doesn't say here, um, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But that's what it says before in Revelation uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3. But on 4 on, we don't have the word church in here at all. He's talking to tribulation saints here. He says, if anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. And take this call seriously to endure, uh, to, to endure till the end. To have faith in Christ no matter what you face. Now, you and I can apply this to our lives because we face trials every day and we, we, our faith is being tested on a regular basis and more so now than probably ever before in our, in our country. In the, in the uh, well, never mind. Uh, but, but we're being tested more and more today than ever before, folks. And it's not over. And I know that, you know, there is no sanctuary in this world, folks, except for the Lord. He is our sanctuary. He's our strong tower. We run to him. We don't run to a state. We don't run to a place in this world. We run to Jesus Christ. He will protect us. And we find our refuge in him. But here's the reality. The, the Lord has for you and I. It's called endurance. We're called to endure. Endure hardships like a good soldier. Jesus says, he who endures till the end shall be saved. Don't think for a second that your faith won't be tested in these last moments. You, the Lord could call your life to the carpet today. He has. He's allowed those things to happen in this world. Christians in our country have been asked that question, renounce Christ or die. And, and what you need to know is that it will be your faith in that moment that will carry you through. Now, saving faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You know, we're, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works lest anyone, anyone should boast. But, it's, but the faith that we have is a gift from God. He gives us the faith to believe. Sustaining faith you have responsibility for. You, you have responsibility to increase your faith. How do we increase our faith? Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Paul tells us, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, here's the reality for a believer. You're not gonna do this. You're not gonna renounce Christ if you're a believer. But here's, here's the reality of it is that uh, your faith will be weak if you don't invest in it. 
because there's a partnership between you and God relating to faith after you're saved. You have to invest in your relationship with Christ. I said earlier, if you want to have more confidence in, 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 in you know, the Lord and what he's doing in this world today, you have to know him more. That's called increasing your faith. The more faith you have, the less fear you'll have. You know, some people, it just blows my mind. They're like, oh, I'm so afraid. And I'm like, well, how much do you read your Bible? And you're like, oh, I don't. Well, okay, well, I mean, you might want to start there. Uh, that's where faith comes from. And you have a responsibility to invest in your relationship with Christ. It blows my mind that people will come to church on a regular basis and all these sorts of things. They will not read their Bible. That blows my mind. Listen, I was, a, I was not a, a kid that grew up in church. What I knew was that this right here is inspired. What I knew was that God was going to speak if I would open this up and invest in, in this. And you know what? The fear that I had in my life of anxiety, waking up, not sure whether I was going to live or die, that went away the more faith I had, the more faith the Lord built in his word in my life. And some of you are, um, you know, maybe not here, but, but, but many people in this world today are freaking out. And I say, what in the world is going on? I'm sleeping good. I'm sleeping really good because I'm not worried. And I hope you're not worried. Because the word tells us that he's going to see us through. Hey, if he calls you home, praise God. If he calls you home, praise God. If you, if you have to endure something, then know that this is a moment where God is trying to teach you something about himself. It doesn't matter if it's cancer. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's you know, somebody, you know, trying to uh, come against you and speaking falsely against you. What I know is that your faith will carry you through. Now, that isn't to say that God won't show up in that moment and give us additional faith, but you have a responsibility. That's all I'm saying. The call to the Christian is endurance and faith. Endurance and faith. That doesn't change. That's never changed. In this time, though, in these moments, in these last moments, uh, it will be, the Lord is telling them that they will need endurance and faith. You're, you're not, if you don't have endurance and faith, you're not gonna be a Christian in this time frame. You're not gonna be able to go through the motions in the tribulation period, folks. So I wanna encourage you, that call is not changed. That call does not change. This isn't a different call for tribulation saints than it is for you and I. You know, we live in the age of grace and you should be very thankful that you live in the age of grace. You know, uh, that age is coming to a close. That age is coming to a close. Then the wrath of God will come down on this world. And if you're not a believer, guess what? Uh, if your name is not written in the, in the book of life, if, if you're not a follower of the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, then you don't have hope. And so I would understand why you're afraid. But today you can have that hope, folks. You, you just call upon Jesus. And he's your savior, he wants to save you. And you just receive him as your Lord first, then savior, your Lord. That means that he's in control of your life. That means you take your keys out of your pocket, your wallet out of your back pocket or purse or whatever, and you say, everything's yours, Lord. You're my Lord. I give myself over to you. That's the one question we should leave with today. Do I know that I know that I know that I'm in a right relationship with the Lord? Do I know that? Listen, if you don't, you can come to him today. You can believe upon him today and he will save you. Listen, 
we believe wholeheartedly that the church will be taken out of the world uh, before the tribulation period. But if we're wrong, then you know what? We'll, we'll be seen through it. We'll, we'll see right through it. We'll, we'll, we'll go right through it, and the Lord will see us through it. But, but I believe wholeheartedly we will not be here. And I want you, if you don't know the Lord, to come with us. The enemy wants you to stay so he can take you to, to, to eternal damnation. You can live in the lake of fire with him. So if you don't know him, you come to know him this morning. If you do, listen, take this call seriously. Invest in your relationship with God. Today is the day, folks. No more playing around. There, there's no more time to play around. Listen, we don't go through the motions. We don't check something off a list. You either are in or you're out. Get, if, get all in with him today if you're not. Give him everything. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.